Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Well, good morning, Awakening Church. Why don't you grab a seat? We're absolutely thrilled to have you join us this morning. We are in part three of our series, Controversial Jesus. We've been journeying through the sermon on the Mount, actually for a couple months, uh, but we're in this season um, where uh, we're talking about some, some deep and weighty things. Um, week one, we talked about Jesus and politics. Uh, week two, last week, we talked about Jesus and anger. This morning, uh, the subject at hand is Jesus and sexuality. And I recognize that as we approach this deeply personal weighty subject, that, um, that some of you are probably nervous when you're talking about Jesus and sexuality in the church, and for some just reasons. Uh, as we begin this conversation, I want to begin actually with an apology. The church in America has blown it big time and dropped the ball when it comes to talking about our sexuality and specifically has ostracized and shamed and pushed away an entire community that Jesus loves, the LGBTQ plus community. And I do want to say I'm sorry for that. On behalf of the church and as a pastor, it breaks the heart of God and it breaks my heart. On that, I do want to say, as Awakening, we've done our best over the years to really try to love the way Jesus loves, to communicate the teachings of Jesus in a way that's winsome and loving, and yet I recognize at the same time we've not done it perfectly or well. And I want to apologize for the areas as Awakening we've blown it in this area where we've been silent when we should have spoken up, or we maybe didn't understand fully or fully aware, and so misspoke. I'll give you one example. A number of years ago, uh, we were doing a series called Spark. is on uh, human sexuality, and um, part four of it, I begin with just this, this conversation of um, where we, like, what I believe about the gospel and Jesus and our sexuality and um, addressing if you're uh, part of the LGBT community and, and what was going on. And, and I get this incredibly thoughtful, profound email that week. It was from a young man in our church who um, would identify as gay, yet honoring his sexuality before Jesus, and I was tempted to read it to you, except that it would probably take the whole sermon. It's literally over two pages, and yet it was so beautiful and winsome and honoring from a heart of humility. There was no hint of anger in it whatsoever. And he, in it, he writes and lets me know, he's like, you know, what was amazing about it, and I love that's where his starting point, was for the first time 
in my entire life, I felt like I had a seat at the table in the church. Where I've been one who's been overlooked for so long. And then you said, and now a hard right shift and talk to all the heterosexuals in the room for the rest of the sermon. And I went back and I listened. I said, you're right. Oh, my gosh. And we sat down and we had such a beautiful and amazing conversation that has shaped me in understanding uh, like my own understanding and him. And in fact, he was so instrumental. Before I give a sermon, I always have a teaching team that I talk to. And, and he was one of the guys who sit down and we just like laid it all out and just talked through this. And for those in this room that are uh, LGBTQ and same-sex attracted who have felt like, man, I don't have a seat at the table. I just want to say I'm sorry. What he wrote in his email, because he's like, you know, the, you've talked about how the judgmentalism of the church is so heartful and painful. And he said, but really what has been most painful is the silence of the church and not speaking up or speaking into it. And so this morning, as we begin this conversation, I, I want to take a posture, I, I hope, of deep humility of approaching God's word and saying, okay, God, what do you have for us and what do we do with it? And how do we live in light of it? And what we want to do over the next few moments together is first unpack our cultural moments. What is the sexual ideology that is the fishbowl, if you will, that we swim in as a culture? Then we want to look at the teaching of Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about our sexuality? And out of that, unpack a theology for human sexuality and, and the impact it has on our lives together. So beginning, let's unpack. If you've got your notes, open them up. Our, our cultural moment. Uh, in the Western culture, the ideology that's pervasive is this ideology of sexual liberation. It came out of the rise of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. has been growing. We had a second major sexual revolution. It was in the 1990s. Anybody know what that sexual revolution was? The Internet has fundamentally changed how we engage and understand our sexuality uh, as human beings. The ideology of sexual liberation or our culture's uh, fishbowl, if you will, is that is that one of this. You are a sexual being with cravings, appetites, and desires. You have the right to fulfill that appetite with whomever you wish, however you wish, and whenever you wish, as long as it is consensual. And that is the anthem of our day. In fact, it would go a little bit further than that, wouldn't it? It said, to, we'd say in our culture to restrict one's sexual appetite is oppressive and close-minded. And I just want you to pay attention and see that for a second. And, and let me just ask this question or maybe make this statement. We would never agree to that in any of our other appetites. 
Like, think about food just for example, you know. Like, you have the right to fulfill that appetite. Absolutely you have the right. The fallacy comes with that every way you fulfill it is good and healthy for you. And far too many of us are gluten-free to know that it is not healthy for us. It's the first time I ever got an amen for (laughs) gluten-free. The result is a sex and sexual um, activity that has now shifted from physical expression of love and one of intimacy to that of experiencing personal fulfillment. It moved from love and sex and intimacy to be self-giving to self-giving. Like the giving of yourself to another person, it's all about them, to getting for yourself. We live in a society saturated with sex and yet starving for love. Isn't it ironic? We have more sex than ever. We live in such a saturated sexual environment. This is the hookup culture. Swipe right. First date, sex is expected. If you paid for the meal... And yet, we are starving for love and for intimacy and continue to keep searching for that connection and that fulfillment and that belonging in our sexuality. And the root issue, I believe, is that where we've compartmentalized our sexuality and our spirituality. And this happens in the church and it happens outside the church. In the church, you know what you do? You walk in, you check your sexuality at the door and you come in, I'm going to be spiritual. And then I'm going to go out and I'm sexual out there. And and we just have these two worlds as if you're just some like weird, like Frankenstein person. Like your sexuality is over here and your spirituality is over here, which produces great confusion and pain. Because we live a fragmented personality and life. And so, how are followers of Jesus to live, to engage in the sexually confused world? Jesus speaks into this confusion and brings great clarity on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Let's look at what Jesus says, and then we're going to develop a theology of human sexuality. Jesus says, you have heard it said... You shall not commit adultery. It's the number seven of the great ten commandments. Adultery is where you have an affair with a married person, whether sexual or emotional. I just felt like I had to define that because we don't really know what adultery is anymore. Uh, it's, it's where you say you see a married person and you sleep around with that married person. That's become okay in our culture for some reason. As long as you love each other, as long as you have strong feelings, it doesn't matter And he's saying, no, you shall not commit adultery. That was commonly accepted. In fact, the punishment, according to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture for adultery, was death. Kind of serious. He says, you shall not commit adultery. And now he's going to take it deeper than that. He's going to get to the heart of the issue. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, he's speaking to heterosexual men at this moment, but it crosses all uh, sexualities here has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone who looks, anyone who directs that one's gaze and stares, looks lustfully, it's to crave the person sexually. Anyone who looks at that person at the gym, 
He says, it's on the same plane as adultery. It's a heart issue. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's on campus. Maybe it's in the privacy of your home. Maybe it's on your phone. And then he goes on. If you want to know the gravity of what Jesus is saying, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole, oh, sorry, I skipped a part. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Ouch. Why? It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Like there's a pattern of living. Here's what he's saying. There's a pattern of living. It may be permissible, but it is not beneficial. There's a pattern of living that will create pain and destruction and ultimately death in your life is what he's saying. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, and for some you're thinking about, well, why does he go on to his right hand? And some talk about the hand of power Other theologians actually talk about the hand that was used to masturbate here. And yes, we're in church, and I just said the word masturbate. We're talking about Jesus and sexuality. Get over it. Let's move on. (laughs) Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go in to hell. Now, Jesus is clearly using hyperbole to make a point to say this is serious, and do whatever it takes to live this life of purity in this regard. However, not all followers after this took him metaphorically, but literally. Origen, one of the great uh, church fathers, brilliant theologians of our time, lived in 184 AD, was born, died in 253 AD. Uh, He's so brilliant, by the way, that he's undertook and translated all the scriptures into Latin. It's known as the Latin Vulgate now. It was used for a thousand years as the predominant translation into Latin. I mean, this guy's brilliant. And yet he was consumed with lust and his own struggle and shame to the point where he actually castrated himself and took Jesus at face value. Okay, so how are followers of Jesus to live sexually In this confusing world. To understand Jesus' teaching here, we actually need to unpack a theology of human sexuality. Jesus' teachings in this moment and the gravity of what he's saying is rooted deeply in a theology of human sexuality. And let's begin with the foundation. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. The theology of human sexuality begins here. Every single person has been made in the image of God. Every single person has been created and shaped into the very image of their creator. Like you have the imprint of God in the Latin, it's the imago Dei. Like you carry around the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says this. So God created mankind, humanity, in his own image restates it for emphasis of importance, of priority, that this is a big deal. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then he says this, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, Basically, get busy with getting busy. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. First, our foundation of a theology of human sexuality begins that every person, whether race or creed or nationality, 
has been made and imprinted in the very image of God. Which means, as we see in this text, our sexuality is part of the Imago Dei. Did you notice we were sexual before we were sinful? In fact, Deborah Hirsch, incredible author, writer, brilliant book called Redeeming Sex, highly recommended. One who is a lesbian who's honoring her sexuality before God writes this. If we are created in the image of God, then our sexuality reflects something of who God is. How we understand and live out our sexuality is profoundly important because we will either reflect our creator or not. There's a few points under here that are important to note as we look at the text. First is that you have intrinsic value. Intrinsic means that it is is built within Like it's not placed upon, but it comes from within. You have value placed in you. You don't have to look to somebody to make you value. You don't have to wear something to make you value. You don't have to have a certain education to make you value or worthy. You have intrinsic value and worth because you were made in the image of God. You're an image bearer of God. So listen, friends. No man or no woman will make you more valuable. And the inverse is true. The lack of a man or woman in your life does not make you less worthy. You have intrinsic, built-in value, imago Dei. And for some, this is the very truth that has been part of the great pain of your life, isn't it? Because some of your heartache and pain and biggest regrets is you're looking to that guy or looking to that girl to fulfill or call you valuable and worthy and hoping to somehow make you better. And God says, no, no, no. You need to realize my imprint is on you. You are worthy. You are valuable. Secondly, he or she has intrinsic value. Well, isn't that saying the same thing? No, it's a different emphasis here. Listen, you have never met an ordinary person in your life. Every single human being that you have come in front of is an image bearer of the God Most High, full of worth and value and dignity. Not because you gave them worth, not because you think they're valuable, but because God placed it in them. I love what Rob Bell said. And yes, I just said Rob Bell in church as well. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Praise the shepherd. (laughs) How you treat the creation reflects how you feel about the creator. Let that sink in for a second. When a human being is mistreated, objectified, or neglected, when they're treated as less than a human, these actions are against God. Now for some, and I just want to address this, you stopped listening because I said the name Rob Bell and he kind of went off the deep end with some wonky theology and you're like, well, what does this pastor really believe? 
instead of embracing the truth of what was just said there. Right here we see what informs Jesus' teaching when he says it brings it. He's like, adultery, come on, let's talk about lust. Let's talk about when you objectify another human being, when you use them for your own self-gratification, when you look at them and say they're an object to be used, not a person to be valued. See, this is where it came from. Let's talk about the porn industry for a second. Porn, at its core, objectifies the image bearers of God. It doesn't matter what kind of porn it is. It doesn't matter where softcore, hardcore, gay, straight, all those sort of things. It's just like this porn, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And we kind of like have all these categories. No, with a minute, you are objectifying another human being. You are degrading the image of God in them. Did you know that the porn industry worldwide is over a $90 billion industry? In America, USA, it's over a $13 billion industry. Another great book, one you probably never will buy because it's the title of the book's Your Brain on Porn, and nobody wants to have that title on their shelf. Some great research has been done on the neuroscience and the impact of pornography on our brain and what happens, and how as we engage in that, it triggers centers of our brain, releases dopamine, and and I, I mean, I'm not the scientist, you can go read the book. What it tells us is that it creates this addictive cycle it, what it tells us is that what fires together wires together, and as you engage and you, can, you consume porn, it actually rewires your brain. <laughs> what it tells us also is that when you engage in that activity, like any addiction, each hit, you need a little bit more, a little bit different. Do you know 88% of pornography is aggressive and violent? And did you know that 30% of all women report first sexual experience as not voluntary? 30%. 40% of girls under the age of 15, their first experience sexually is not voluntary or unwanted. 20% of college women report to being forced to have sex against their will. And that's only the ones that report. That's why Jesus says, I tell you, if you look lustfully, you've committed adultery. This is a degrading of the imago Dei in another human being and treating them as a commodity for your own gratification. This is why this should not be among the people of God. Finally, under point one, yes, we're only on point one. Sex is God's idea. Sex is God's idea from the very beginning. There's two kind of views when it comes to our sexuality, it's either that sex is everything, that's our culture's view, that's who you are, or the other view that sex is evil. 
There's a couple of people in that camp, I'm sure more, but for those who have experienced such heartache and pain and sexual abuse, you land in that camp. And then there's those who grew up in the church and heard a narrative about our sexuality that was not true or consistent with Scripture. That, that sex is like this evil and it's dirty and it's gross. Yet, in fact, sex is God's idea. Some of you thought, wow, God is anti-sex. He's a prude. The church's view on sexuality is archaic, naive, and oppressive. And by the way, as a teenager, I set, we'll get that. (laughs) I was between certainly and definitely. I was trying to work out those two words. I certainly thought that. God, you're a cosmic killjoy. And yet God is the inventor and designer. And wouldn't you think as the inventor and designer, he knows the best way for us to express it. Tim Keller, incredible pastor, author, says this in his book, Meaning of Marriage. says, sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. Friends, if you think God is a prude on sexuality, Get to the middle of your Bible and find Song of Solomons or Song of Songs, whatever it's labeled in your Bible, and just read that, and you'll just be a little embarrassed that you're reading the Bible and reading this. You're going like, ooh. And now, some of their references don't always like, you know, come across. Like, David's talking about this beautiful woman. He's like, your neck's like the Tower of David. Like, okay, that doesn't really get me. Your teeth are beautiful, you know, sheep. You, everyone has their pair, which, you know, in a culture where not everyone had all their teeth, that's a big deal for beauty, right? You know what I'm saying? And it says your breast, uh, you know. And anyways, I'll stop there. <laughs> but it speaks of the beauty. It speaks just such depth and wonder of the sexual relationship in the context of marriage. Jesus, in Matthew 19, verse 4, says this, as he's being questioned on marriage. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? He's going back to the Genesis narrative. This is his theology on sexuality. And now, he jumps over to Genesis 2. They didn't have chapters division then, but we'll say it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's sexually united. And the two will become one flesh. That sex is so much more than just physical. That yes, it has a procreation element. Yes, it is pleasurable and it's amazing. And it creates this deep bond and oneness between whoever engages in it. Because it's meant to be the the great sense of unity and oneness and intimacy. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God, what, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And a historic new Christian view on our sexuality is that sex, sexual expression, it is this incredible gift, sacred of God, to be expressed in the confines of a covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman for life. It's fascinating about the research. It says that those who abstain from, sexual, uh, from premarital sex report higher levels of sexual satisf- satisfaction. Those married, on average, by the way, because one of the lies is like, Married people don't have sex. Um, Single people get all the sex. 
Those married, on average, have more sex than singles, as well as more adventurous with their partner. The whole test drive theory, it's fascinating to note culturally, just data. Those who cohabitate before married are 50% more likely to end in divorce. Theology, human sexuality begins with every single person has been made and created in the image of God. Number two, every single person has been marred by sin and brokenness. Paul the Apostle writes this in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Circle that word all. I did some great research this week and did an in-depth word study in the Greek there. And by the way, you know what all means? All. All. Every single person have sinned or broken. I was talking with my friend who was... We were talking all about, you know, this series and who's, you know, sent me the email earlier and he was giving me insight on this. And, and he had this line and I loved it. He, and he meant it from a, 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 nice, a nice space, but he said, well, can you start with this point? I said, well, I mean, the, the gospel narrative begins in Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3. And let me wrestle with that and think about it. And, and he's like, here's the reason why. And he doesn't mean this negatively, but he's got a good point. I just, I just think it'd be great to knock heterosexuals down a bit. What do you mean by that? See, in the church, as in Jesus' day, there's this sliding scale of sin. Jesus is actually confronting it in the Sermon on the Mount with the religious Pharisees, the sliding scale of sin. So he, he talks about murder over here. And anger, which isn't that big of a deal. We have this sliding scale of sin. Then he talks about adultery over here, and then he talks about lust over here. And we have this sliding scale of sin. Like, these are really bad, and this isn't so bad. And if I'm over here, you're a bad person. But if I'm over here, well, you know, everybody does it. It's not that big of a deal. And you know what's happened in the church today? We have homosexual sin over here, and we have heterosexual sin over here. And the reality is, is God doesn't have a category and have a sliding scale of sin. He doesn't have little s sin and big s sin. Yes, I know what that sounds like. It's intentional. He doesn't have either one of those. You know what he calls it? Sin. And he says, you're in the camp and I'm in the camp. We are in the camp. There is no position or place for pride or superiority or that somehow you're better than or that you would put anyone down. Deborah Hirsch writes again, every human being on the planet is sexually broken. Everybody's orientation is disoriented. Another great resource, I encourage you to look him up, Sam Alberry, incredible Uh, author, writer, a gay Christian man who's honoring God with his sexuality. He said, we are all skewed sexually. So stop calling yourself straight. I learned this week, again, my ignorance, and I'm learning all the time. And I said it earlier, and I didn't mean to say it. Did you know, for our friends and brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community, that like saying... Or straight is, is offensive? I didn't know that. I do know. 
Because it's, it's immediately saying, we're straight and right, and you're wrong and broken. Do you know in the Old Testament that they had many words for uh, sin? Uh, in fact, I think, actually, Liz Diddy even talked about it at Crew this last week. You have the words like transgressions, but one of the words is fascinating. It's the word iniquity. It's the word where we find in talking about the, uh, the song of the coming Messiah who would, who would save us from our sin. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's fascinating about this word iniquity. The word iniquity means to be bent or to be twisted. It's the literal picture of a tree that's gnarled and growing crooked. And that all of us have a natural bent away from God. All of our sexualities have a natural bent away from God. My story is when I was eight years old, I remember seeing my first nude image. It was in the basement of my uncle's um, house. My brothers were watching a rated R film. I could still tell you the name of the film, and I can still see the image in my mind to this day. Based on my natural bent away from God, that image stuck with me and started a whole series of events. When I was in my late junior high, early high school days, the internet was becoming a thing. We didn't really know a whole lot about it, but then I began to search and I praise God in those days that it was the dial-up, AOL. Like to see an image of a naked woman took like 10 minutes as it just like slowly. Unlike today where it's just nonstop video immersive. In my teenage years, I was addicted to pornography Completely. To the point it began to shape my identity, my self-worth. I, I really got caught and kind of exposed. That was great. Except I brought it with me into college. Deep heartache and pain. And then I brought it with me into my marriage. See, our beginning place is that every single one of you, me included, we're all image bearers of God. And every single one of us is broken. We've been marred by sin. We have this natural bent away from God. We're all skewed sexually. And the good news is God is lovingly pursuing all of humanity to bring restoration Healing, wholeness, renewal. The most famous verse, John 3.16, says this. For God, so underline that word, loved the world. Circle the word world. We don't gra- grasp the gravity of that statement because we take it as a norm. That was an unheard of concept in the ancient day. 
It was God so loved this people. God so loved the Jewish people. Whatever your local deity is that you worship, God loved you and was against whoever you were against. And this proclamation of God's love for every single person, every single tribe, every single tongue and language, and every single person, heterosexual or homosexual, God loves the entire world. You are deeply, unconditionally loved. Well, how loved that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In John's gospel, the word eternal life is a technical term. It's not just like life later, like heaven later. It's this technical term that means life now and forevermore. It's the fullness of life that you get to experience in Jesus alone. And then we have, after the most famous verse, the forgotten verse, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Maybe his followers should try it. But to save the world through him. God can redeem what we have wrecked, friends. God can redeem what someone else wrecked in us. The question is, what can we legitimately expect from God in the form of healing and hope? Because how we answered this is incredibly important. Because I think some of the ways that we've answered it in the church has created great pain and suffering. How can we expect this healing and hope? Well, one area is, is the area of supernatural healing. I'll just take my example that I gave you. For some, I've known people who have had a pornography addiction that has wrecked their life, ruined their marriage, and God supernaturally healed them of it, and it's no longer a struggle. And that's awesome. It's just not my story. And that's not the whole story either. And that's what we do with our friends in the LGBTQ community too. Like if you have this desire for another person, that's wrong. And we need to change you or pray the gay away. And created such angst and heartache. I think more common... Certainly there are supernatural healing, but more common is the slow, methodical sanctification of the follower of Jesus when he brings his life or when she brings his life before him. It's the process of, God, you get to have my life. God, you get to have my life. Paul, the apostle, prayed three times for God to take away the thorn in his flesh, and God said no. Paul the apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, whose teaching reshaped the Western world as we know it. The person who is the most prolific church planner in all of history prayed and said, would you take this thorn away? We don't know what the thorn was. We don't know what the issue was. It could have been sexual. It could have been something else. And he's, God, would you take it away? Would you supernaturally heal me? And God says, no. And you know what he said? But I'm going to heal your perspective on it. And for many of us, that's our process where we bring it before him and it's the slow, arduous sanctification where you bring your life before him. And what does this mean? This means that every follower of Jesus 
is to submit their sexuality to Jesus. This is not for those of you who are not followers of Jesus. This is not for those for, of us to impose on the outside world. For those who, we are called to say, we are going to submit our sexuality. I'm going to submit my sexuality to Jesus. Well, where do you get that from, Ingram? Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, do you want to be his disciple? Must deny themselves. Take up their cross. By the way, the cross wasn't this cute little religious form that you wear on jewelry. And it's like, oh, isn't that so nice? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that fleek? Do they use that anymore? No, it's old. I thought it was. I knew when it went through my head. I'm like, that is so like five years ago. <laughs> on fleek, yeah. But I, you know, anyways. Anyways. Ingram, stop being culturally relevant. Just preach the Bible. Okay. <laughs> It was a form of capital punishment and execution. And he says, willingly take that up. And I love that he says their cross. Because all of our cross is going to look a little bit different based on our natural bent away from God, isn't it? And follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now, I want you to understand who you're bringing your sexuality to. To Jesus. Not to the church. Jesus. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. But here's what that means. We often think of Jesus and we think it's like God in a man suit, you know? That's not the case. In fact, the Apostle Paul lets us know that he veiled his humanity, that when Jesus walked this planet, he walked it not like, hey, I got this S on my chest and I'm living it out. He walked it under the um, in, like empowerment of the Spirit of God in his life. Fully man, which means fully sexual. Jesus, by the way, 60% single church, Single. We'll talk a lot more about singleness and marriage next week because Christianity is the only religion in history up to this point in time when Jesus is speaking and Paul is speaking that elevated singleness. Single yet not incomplete. Not lacking. It's tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. That's who you're submitting your sexuality to, friends. And for some, you're like, okay, Ingram, this is easy for you. You're married and you have three kids. Um, by the way, marriage doesn't solve your problem. It simply magnifies your problems. You know, uh, if you're married and you said amen right there, that probably wasn't the best moment to say amen. <laughs> just, just thought I'd let, let you know. Um, amen. Amen. And by the way, the goal of the Christian life isn't to be married. The goal of the Christian life is Jesus. Like that, friends, that you would catch a vision of Jesus that eclipses everything else. 
that you would see our God who loves you, who died for you, and you go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to deny myself and run after you. It's how Jesus talked about the kingdom. He said it's the, cur- the pearl of great price, like where you'd sell everything else because it's so valuable. How would you not? It doesn't feel like losing. It feels like gaining. It's the person who finds a treasure in a field and then goes and sells all that he has, and he says, I'm going to give it all away so that I can get this treasure in the field. When you start seeing Jesus as a treasure, then you'll understand the Christian life. And what we do is we just want to add Jesus to our life because we treasure our life more than Jesus. Deborah Hirsch again says this, repentance involves accepting our broken condition and looking to the Savior, Jesus, to fill our gaps. We can't have it on our own terms. We have to accept God's perspective on the human condition. By the way, the life Jesus calls us to cannot be done apart from him. Sam Alberry says it this way, we need to recognize the cost of discipleship for everyone. For many in our churches, the cost of discipleship for the LGBT background people looks cruel and unusual. I suspect in most cases that's because we're not counting the cost of discipleship in other areas of life. Jesus says, all of us have to say a profound no to some of our greatest deep, some of our deepest longings and intuitions. That is discipleship. Jesus says it up front. He doesn't bury it in the small print. The wonderful paradox, paradox of the Christian faith is that as we deny self, we become our real self. What does this look like to submit our sexuality to Jesus? The Apostle Paul would write it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Anything that is outside the bounds of God's design for our sexuality, like run from it. Like run from it. Don't get near it. Don't play games. Don't like, how close can I get? Oh, yeah. Like flee from it. Why? All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. All the way back then, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul knew that your sexual sin is more than just physical. It's deeply connected to you. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. Now, this is a revolutionary way to think about your life. You are not your own. Why? You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You're not your own. You're his. Therefore, honor God with your body. What does this look like? I'll just give you, for me, it's embarrassing it's embarrassing to be a 38-year-old man and still say, man, I, I'm an addict. I'm not trying to deny that. I'm not trying to push it down. I, I have to be aware of my natural bent away from God, and I have to flee from it. And so I have things in my life, knowing that if I don't uh, put these areas in my life, I have this natural backslide I mean, I mean, this is like when Jesus is talking about, like, if your right eye causes your sin, like, cut it off. I, I mean, like, my phone. I would love to say that I don't have social media on my phone because I'm that spiritual. I'm just that broken. Like, I have a parental control on my phone that my wife has so that it keeps me away from stuff. That is harmful to me. 
like our passcodes for stuff at the house and the internet. I don't know. My wife knows. Like, like I've had to go to great lengths. And what I know is I've just taken small and consistent steps towards Jesus, and I'm being transformed, and I'm being changed, and I still struggle, and it's still hard, and I'm still broken, and there's times where I take steps back, and I feel like I'm knocked down, and I get back up, and I just go, okay, God, thank you for grace. Here I go. I'm coming again, and here's what I'm asking you to do, singles. Here's what I'm asking you to do, marrieds. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Wherever you land, would you submit your sexuality to Jesus and trust that he is enough, and do whatever it takes to go, okay, I'm yours. Finally, yes, we're coming down to the home stretch. The church should be the safest place to wrestle with questions. Andy Stanley once said, and I agree with it, the church should be the safest place on the planet for students to talk about anything, including same-sex attraction. I'd add to the conversation now gender dysphoria. Where our friends don't feel ashamed and put down or judged, but they can come out and just be able to talk and open and know they'll be loved. The church needs to stop judging those outside the church. 1 Corinthians 5.12, the Apostle Paul said, What business is, is it of mine to judge or yours to judge those outside the church? Implication, none y'all bidding it. Like that's what it means. In fact, Billy Graham said it this way, it's God's job to judge, it's Spirit's job to convict, my job to love. The church needs to be once more known for how we love and not for what we're against. We talked about this already and what love looks like. But let me unpack this for a second. To love the way Jesus loves is incredibly messy. To love the way Jesus loves is to risk being misunderstood, especially being misunderstood by religious people. Jesus had this incredible ability that no matter what human was in front of him, he accepted them fully, yet did not agree with what they were doing. We see this in his life as he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Culturally, in the ancient uh, Jewish culture, was to eat and drink with someone, to share a meal, was the sign of acceptance. This was what's so violating to the Pharisees. How could you do that? How could you say you accept them? And yet he did. And he ate and drank with Pharisees as well. See, there's a vast difference between accepting and agreeing, accepting and affirming. See, Jesus accepted them fully and called them to a new life. It's like the woman caught in adultery and where he takes on her shame. If you don't know the story, you can go look it up in John chapter 8. He takes on their shame. And then he, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And they have gone. There's not one of them. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't leave her there. He says, now go and sin no more. Had this incredible way of accepting, not agreeing with. And the tragic reality is in our day and age, tolerance has shifted. 
See, 100, 200 years ago, the word tolerance meant I won't kill you. We agree that we're not going to kill one another. We're going to tolerate each other. 50 years ago, it meant we're going to agree to disagree. We're just going to disagree, and it's okay. We can coexist together. Today, tolerance means you must agree with me. In fact, 40% of millennials believe that if you don't agree with them, it's judging them. Friends, that's nothing. That couldn't be further from the truth. See, we can love well and love the way Jesus loves and be in a, in a posture of humility and, we, and accept those in our midst. Doesn't mean affirming, but let me close this way because the church should be the safest place to wrestle with questions. For those who are in the LGBTQ community, I just want to say you're welcome here. Married to the same sex, you're welcome here. I'm sorry for this hate spewed by those who claim the name of Jesus. We're going to be clear about what Jesus says, and we're going to do our best to follow Jesus in every area of our life. I want to make extra clear, we love you. Jesus loves you. I don't know where you are when hearing a message like this or what you're thinking. But I just want to tell you, my aim and goal this morning wasn't somehow to change your mind. And it actually isn't my goal any of my weeks that I teach. My aim and goal was simply to introduce you to Jesus who has changed my life. That's all I want to do. That's all we want to do. I just want you to know the Savior who saved me, who transformed me, who took me out of this pit of my own sin and brokenness and put my feet on steady ground and who loves me and whose grace I rely on daily. Would you meet that Jesus? Would you stand real close? Jesus, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray that you would once more make us a community of love. Make us a church that is holy, pursuing you, that is more concerned with knowing you than anything else, like where we just treasure Jesus. Would you give us a vision of you. May we be a people of grace, a people of hope, a people of life to a hurting and broken world. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.